Welcome everybody to the first of a series of sessions on developing a funding mindset. We'll get the opportunity to hear from the founder of the Center on Disability Studies, Bob Stodden, and other members of the extended CDS team about how to develop sustainable funding practices for your academic and professional career. Having a clear understanding of how to do this is more important than ever in these unprecedented times that we've been experiencing, but the benefits will long outlast this particular moment. And the ideas and strategies that we'll be talking about can help you create a sustainable practice, broaden your potential contribution, help you be part of creating the kind of culture necessary to thrive in uncertainties and to help the continued growth here of CDS. In this session, we'll talk a bit about what this funding mindset looks like, um, what it has looked like at CDS and other institutions, look at different types of funding and balancing the relationship between funding and scholarly activity. It's my real pleasure to introduce Bob Stodden. In 1988, he founded the Center on Disability Studies. He's a past president of the Association of University Centers on Disability. He has served for decades as a national and international leader in special education, school to adult transition, post-secondary education, and employment for people with disabilities. He founded the National Center for the Study of Post-Secondary Educational Supports, and the National Technical Assistance Center for the Employment of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders with Disabilities. And in addition to founding the Review of Disability Studies and the PACRIM International Conference on Disability and Diversity, which just celebrated its 36th year, um, and this year uh, completely online, um, he served as principal investigator and director, and I, I, I can't believe this, this uh, in well over 150 research and training projects, uh, focusing on improving the lives of people with disabilities. In addition to being a keynote speaker and presenter at many national and international conferences and working with a host of different international and national organizations and NGOs, he served as a Kennedy Fellow, working with the US Senate to help draft policy language for major pieces of disability legislation. And finally, uh, many of those who have worked with uh, Bob credit him and his mentorship as a defining influence in their professional lives. It's a real honor to welcome Bob Stodden. Thank you, Bob, very much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you, Raphael. Uh, whenever I hear that introduction, uh, I feel 100 years old or older. <laughs> but uh, thank you for the kind introduction. And, uh, and I really appreciate you taking on this effort of uh, assembling this masterclass on funding. Uh, because I honestly believe it's probably the most important skill uh, that an individual in higher education can have uh, if you want to be a noted individual in your field. So uh, 
and particularly, I think, for people working in uh, centers, research centers that are largely soft money centers or funded extramurally, this is a critical skill, not only for your own survival, but uh, for the uh, reputation of the center and the university. So, uh, so I appreciate you doing this, and, uh, and I look forward to being part of it. So I appreciate you including me. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I couldn't be more grateful for you uh, sharing your ideas and your, your wisdom and experience and, uh, and offering kind of a, a virtual mentorship to, to lots of folks who have not had uh, the pleasure of getting to work with you personally. Um, I wanted to jump right in and ask you um, if you could say a little bit about what this funding mindset is. And you've talked a little bit about um, the importance of becoming a funding rainmaker. Uh, if you wouldn't mind kind of saying what that, what that means. Yes, well, it's about money, 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 if you uh, are honest. Uh, so being a rainmaker or the rain, a rainmaker in itself, and there actually is a movie probably in the ancient archives at Netflix uh, entitled The Rainmaker. And a rainmaker is a person that rains money. And uh, they make money from nothing is technically the concept. And, and uh, the term is known, uh, it's fairly common in the financial markets, but not really commonly used in university environments. So I kind of tagged on to this title uh, years ago in, when I first started generating extramural funds and it kind of stuck. It was, uh, it was kind of a culminating word that explained what this, uh, what this mindset was or, uh, or, or what this energy was that was needed to succeed in, uh, in uh, gathering extramural money. So uh, uh, it's very important to, to kind of understand that it's a mindset uh, not necessarily uh, a set of skills that you can acquire in a workbook, uh, even, even though I think skills are helpful. But uh, it's kind of based on a very simple formula that I've used throughout my life uh, in higher education. And it's a simple formula that uh, people equal activity, money equals people, and activity equals outputs and outcomes. So if you have no money, uh, there's no people, no personnel, no activity, and there's no outcomes or outputs, uh, particularly related to the lives of people with disabilities, uh, which is our field. So, uh, so applying that formula, if you're not concerned with the funding and you're not actively involved in generating the funding, uh, you're sort of out of the loop for all of this happening. In other words, for positions to be continued, for people to be continued, activity to be continued, and outcomes and outputs uh, continually generated. So, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> so this is, uh, this is a mindset to operate within, or it's a frame of reference. Uh, 
Uh, it's actually a set of behaviors that uh, when I originally began to think about it, uh, it, it was almost like they were innate, uh, that they couldn't be trained. And I'm not sure if they can be trained today. Like I, I do know that teaching a class, because uh, I have taught courses on how to do this, uh, does not necessarily work. In other words, by teaching you how to do it through a class, you don't typically acquire the behaviors uh, necessary to do it. Uh, the way I've seen it work is that uh, people do it. You do it over and over and over. You practice, you, you don't, not, don't practice, but you do it for real over and over until you've, you have the, uh, uh, the energy, the skills, those things come together and you're successful and success breeds on its success in many ways. So being a rainmaker, uh, so you might think, well, I've never thought about being a rainmaker. And most people, honestly, in university settings have never thought about it. But if you're working in a research and development center, such as the Center on Disability Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, it's, it's a critical skill to have uh, because you're typically going to be slotted in what is referred to as the soft money or temporary position. And uh, so the question is, how do you make temporary, not permanent, but continuous? for the lifespan of your career and in support of your scholarly development and growth within the university. So this mindset or this frame of reference, uh, it, it looks like many things and, uh, and some, a lot of them are not describable. I'll kind of try to describe a person here and there that uh, I've, I've identified the characteristics and uh, and where those characteristics panned out. And, and so I could put two and two together, so to speak. So in many ways, it's an attitude. Uh, it's an attitude that you attempt to spawn within a culture. It's a demeanor, like a sense of, uh, a good way to put it, it's a sense of making something out of nothing. Uh, because uh, you may start with little and uh, you, you want it to grow. Uh, so, and it's a behavior that's developed over time. Uh, and typically it's reinforced by uh, achieving or gaining funding and then uh, further expanding that funding. So it grows, uh, so to speak. I always use the term, uh, it has legs. Words, it's going someplace. It's not uh, something that's stagnant. It's not something that ends because if it ends, you end technically. So uh, it, it's all of those mentalities that uh, kind of come together and they, they create this demeanor or this attitude of uh, uh, I'm going to be successful in doing this. And then you put that together with a set of skills on how to do it. And, uh, and you are a rainmaker then. So that, that, that kind of gives you an idea uh, of all the different pieces. I guess putting them together so it makes some sense might be 
is probably more difficult. It's more difficult uh, to do than said. <laughs> I can say it, but doing it, and I'm sure in everybody's mind, that also is first and foremost is, yeah, it's easy to say this, but uh, how do you do it? Or what's the, how hard is it to do it? And, and it is hard to do it. The way that you describe this, Bob, it sounds like um, even though we're, we're trying to kind of uh, uh, invite people to learn these things, that you're, you, you, almost, you, you said that it was perhaps almost an innate thing. Uh, and at the same time, it sounds like the, what you said was that the ways that a person does learn these things, if indeed they are possible to learn them, is by doing it and doing it over and over again. Uh, and practicing it and getting the kind of energy and the skills necessary and with success breeding success. So thinking about that and like what you were saying about having doing this, um, having this mindset in a way that it, it grows and, and creates legs. What are some of the specific strategies that this mindset invites? Uh, what would it look like in real specific practical terms for someone listening to this and thinking, okay, mm -hmm. I want to do that, uh, what what would what would it look like? Well, it's uh, so, so there there are kind of a number of behaviors that are evident, and probably the first person I encountered that that actually displayed this mindset, uh, she had it when I first talked to her. After about fifteen minutes of talking to her, I could see a spark in her eye that told me uh, this person, she was not satisfied with anything as it was. Uh, she wanted to do things that were impossible, believed impossible by others. Uh, she was willing and ready to do it right now. Uh, there was a sense of immediacy. There was this, uh, all these kind of things that she didn't say any of these things, but they were evident in her, in the demeanor that she presented herself in. Um, so following working with her, my sense was that, uh, boy, this would, these would be great characteristics in every person I worked with, uh, because we, we would really do a lot of great things if that were the case. And I look for ways to label those things and uh, I guess teach them or develop them in people. And, and that's, kind of, uh, that, that, that's kind of the steps I've taken to move, move that forward. Uh, and it's actually happened with a number of people over the years in CDS that many that have gone on and, uh, and are highly successful. But, uh, <clears throat> This is, uh, it's, uh, it's something that's a little bit hard to grasp. Uh, I've tried to, in talking to deans in the past uh, at the university, I've tried to define it uh, and to put it on a personnel recruitment, uh, you know, in defining desirables and minimums uh, to put it on that list. And it, it's very difficult to do. It remains kind of intangible, but kind of as you described it, this attitude, as we, we saw in the example that um, of not being satisfied with things as they are, uh, a sense of being able to take on other th things that other people think are impossible, uh, a sense of immediacy, and 
um, as a person thinks about finding places to practice this idea, uh, what are some of the different kinds of funding, like we, we sometimes kind of by default only think about grants, and I know that you've said that it's much broader than that. What are some of the kinds of fundings uh, that people should keep in mind as they think about developing this kind of, of mindset and, and starting to practice what you're talking about? Yeah, so the, the whole concept of, uh, I guess, continuation of temporary or soft money contracts or positions uh, in research centers, uh, the whole concept of continue or making a career of doing that and very successfully uh, is based on the idea of always generating the next steps or the legs that uh, would take you to the next thing. So you may have a grant that is a research grant that generates new findings and those new findings maybe need to be trained. People need to be trained in those findings. So you might develop materials, training materials and deliver training workshops and courses all for money uh, based upon what you found in that grant. So you're creating the legs from one activity to the next activity. And, and these legs spiral out. So uh, one set of legs is gonna result in four more sets of legs, uh, et cetera. And uh, so, so that, that, that's the forward thinking that kind of goes with being a rainmaker. You, uh, you need to be two or three steps ahead of, uh, of what you're currently doing. And, and one, one thing I always did, and I still do today, is if, uh, if I get a grant or I'm working on a grant, I'm always thinking of what, is, what are the next three grants or the next three activities that might be, might be yielded from this grant? And, uh, and how can I take those forward? And each of them needs to be a funding source uh, in of itself and to generate further new funding. So for example, you, you're talking here about kind of spreading off from uh, like if we have an existing grant and mm -hmm. really having a mindset that thinks about and proactively ways that this could generate other types of funding. You mentioned immediately thinking about like, for example, with a research grant, how you might create training material and workshops. If we just stick with those two things for a second, mm -hmm. uh, can we get a little bit more specific who, who would the target for those things be um, that you should, that one would be good to think about or and, and other possible vehicles too? Yeah, well, let me, uh, I'll use an example. Uh, I, I guess back in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, I was working on a series of projects in an area that was very specific, it was on career vocational uh, assessment for students with disabilities. And uh, I was working with the concept of curriculum-based assessments, which uh, were fairly new and not understood by people anywhere nationally. Uh, so luckily, not luckily, we wrote an excellent research grant and initiated the grant and it began to yield findings right away telling us that this could be highly effective 
uh, in vocational classes, both in high school and community colleges. So immediately we broke out those things that looked like promising practices and uh, wrote them up into a handbook uh, that then was distributed to state directors of vocational education in all the states and any university program that was interested in this concept. And I began presenting this at conferences all over the country. So we got it out through conferences. We got it in this the day before the internet. <laughs> uh, we got it out in the mail and began to get feedback that there was some interest. People didn't know what this was, but it looked good and there was some interest in it. So uh, I began to organize regional meetings to bring people together from state departments and districts uh, in different regions of the mainland. And, and we presented this uh, in the form of a handbook. So we'd written up a book, how to do, this is how you did it, A to Z, and this is how it works. And we matched that up with a technical assistance plan. So we had the handbook, we were selling that. We had a technical assistance plan to support the handbook. We were selling that plan. Uh, we also did visitations then, so a state would ask, uh, several states asked uh, myself and others to come in and to describe this to their uh, content people. Uh, so we did a lot of visitations, so consultations, again, on a fee basis. Uh, so uh, all, all this time we're collecting funds in an array of different ways, uh, all on the same topic. And then several states, almost 20 states, adopted this procedure uh, statewide. And uh, so right away, there was a need to develop a leadership cadre in states that were going to do this. So I organized a course at UH Manoa, and uh, we actually worked with states to fund cadres of leaders, like Florida sent a number of people, Iowa, California, these states that were interested in participating, sent their leaders to Hawaii for an intense week of leadership training in this procedure in CBBA. And we, I charged, we charged tuition as well as a, uh, uh, it was called a service fee at the time, but it included all the possible costs around this uh, for speakers, for materials, for fun evenings, food, luau's, uh, everything that people might come to Hawaii for, uh, for seven days of hard work and fun. And uh, so these people came in and we did this three times. So uh, by the time we had three leadership institutes completed, uh, I had really good coverage across the mainland. And uh, we were operating in 20 states for a good five or six years providing technical assistance. Uh, so this could have been flushed out a lot further than it was, uh, but at, at that point, that one grant, that research grant that initiated this activity was generated funding probably 10 times the value of that grant in a period of five years. And then none of that, the additional 10 times was not writing another grant, even though we wrote several other grants during that time that fed off of those findings that uh, led to other transition grants and things like that. So. 
uh, this is one grant activity that yielded uh, lots of other types of activities and other grants uh, way beyond the value of that activity. And that's what you want. To, uh, you want to see that if you can see that on every project you work on, uh, then you're a major success. You know, there's no question about it. So sticking with this example, we have mm -hmm. the initial grant and its initial research. And then we have you and the team conceiving of different ways that you could extend this and monetize it. And uh, talking about the selling of the handbook, um, the, the presenting at conferences, the visitations, the consulting, uh, and the leadership cadre, the coursework. Now, uh, I, I assume, I know for sure that behind this, there's also a great deal of uh, setting up relationships with institutions, uh, networking, uh, to build these relationships that would allow you to implement the possibilities that you see initially with the, the research grant. Is that right? Yes. No, there, there's a lot of person-to-person, -person, uh, in those days, telephone mainly, <laughs> uh, back and forth, but visitation at conferences, I, I made it, uh, made sure I was at all major conferences where some of my constituents might be and that you were presenting and or you were doing a pre-conference workshop or you're doing something to get their attention and to talk to them, to give them, give them your materials. Uh, yes, and other university people see you out there and they then wanna become part of this too. So we also formed relationships with several universities that were doing similar activity, uh, which all, many of them became future partners in uh, other larger grants that uh, CDS took part in. So you mentioned about 20 states actually ended up adopting uh, from this. Um, how did you how did you get them invested were, were, were they present in these uh, in the conferences that you created relationships with them uh, and then kind of built built communication streams with them and started providing yes. resources yeah, yeah initially uh, people would hear about what you're doing and we wrote journal articles we, we were doing everything on the scholarly side as well as uh, the income production side. Uh, so, so we were we were getting at a lot of people. A lot of people were hearing about this, and uh, the people who had an interest, an interest stuck with them. Uh, right, they would be contacted either by phone, or I would talk to them at a conference or a meeting, uh, or someone else I had trained. Uh, so once we trained the twenty leaders nationally. Uh, they were actually our advocates out there. So I, I treated them as they were our extensions, our arms uh, into other states. And uh, so if someone had a question and they were next to Iowa, say in Nebraska or something, I just referred them to my leader, uh, leader person in Iowa to uh, have them share what's going on and explain. And they, that got a lot better reception than from Hawaii, I'm trying to explain this to, uh, to somebody in Nebraska. So uh, that began to, so this is all you can kind of see, it's a, a building process. And uh, 
it's like step-by-step step, you increase the number of legs, you increase the number of contacts, you, you're, in, you're building your capacity uh, to grow, grow, grow. Um, that, that's a key part uh, to this. Like you, you, you don't look for the end. Uh, I talked to a lot of people, it's like, oh, my grant's over, you know, it's done. Uh, well, the grant's never done technically. It always has legs to go somewhere else uh, if you did anything. And uh, you, that's part of the attitude is, is that uh, you're always looking for those legs. They're always first and foremost in your mind uh, rather than how can I finish this grant or uh, how, uh, what will I do when it's over? Which I, and go the, ahead. The, the continued life of this grant, uh, the central funding sources were uh, uh, through these various vehicles that we talked about were both state agencies and universities, right? Yes, and uh, so it initially started with a grant from the U.S. Department of Education uh, research grant, and and at that time, you know, this was like half a million dollars for five years or something, almost nothing today. But uh, uh, it, it was money that you could leverage into lots of other money, and and it was just a part. The, the whole thinking process was how can I do that in every way possible? Uh, how how can I get this out there and make it the thing to do, or make it the strategy to be used? And how can I maximize the benefit to the center? Uh, to your own career, uh, you, you can put all those things together. But it's a, it's a line of thinking that uh, I, I guess just you reformat your brain and think way beyond what you're currently doing and what the steps are to get there and how to monetize it, you know, it's a good term. Now, you were talking uh, before about in addition to all of this um, and connected to it were, was the scholarly activity that you were doing. And, and often uh, in, in the academy, we're invited to see a real divide between these and not really see them as integrated. Uh, and you and I were talking about how that sometimes uh, developing funding is even looked down upon, you know, like chasing the dollar uh, right. as opposed to the purity of pure scholarly activity. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that these can be uh, best integrated with each other? You kind of started talking about that with what, how, you, how you did that here. Yes, it's, uh, well, I'm sure as most, most people in working in research and development centers kind of, and if you're a soft money or a temporary, uh, uh, considered a temporary person, uh, you've experienced somewhat the devaluing of your role in the university. So we have these constructs called soft and hard. Uh, so you're soft and temporary and you're hard and permanent is uh, typically the terminology used in the university. And it's very destructive terminology because it pairs people against each other rather than uh, to work with each other. And uh, so if... Uh, if you're a tenured hardline person, 
you perceive yourself often as uh, as the person who's going to be there. You're reliable, blah blah blah, on and on. Versus if you're a, a temporary person, uh, you're often perceived as you may be gone at any time. Uh, you know, and particularly at the end of the contractor year, you'll be gone. So it's uh, uh, a little bit. It creates this dynamic that one is can one is thought to be better than the other. When in reality, and I always pitch this that uh, in reality is often the reverse. Uh, the temporary or soft money person is probably much more on the edge of what should be happening in terms of new research and uh, new methods, uh, way more so than the. Uh, permanent person who's very comfortable in their position and not doing maybe state-of-the-art research. So along with this then comes the, the issue of uh, funding. Uh, so there is research that's funded, hardline funded research, uh, but typically most research in university settings is, uh, is considered soft money uh, research. And uh, for you to pursue money for research uh, often has a negative has a negative connotation in university, and this is primarily it, it comes from the idea that a scholarly work should be pure and not tainted by anything. And if money is involved, obviously something's tainted. Uh, so if you are seeking money to do something. Uh, then the results are going to reflect the money that you got. You know, it's this, uh, this sort of dynamic. Uh, and, and my feeling about this always was that uh, these two things went together, that, that you couldn't really be a high-ranking scholarly person if you didn't have money uh, to do your research. In other words, one person as part of their job doing research, there was no way you could do significant research of any value uh, under that situation. You had to acquire funding and work with a number of people who were funded uh, to do quality research with lasting findings and, uh, and to publish and do all the things that you're expected to do uh, as a high-ranking scholarly person. So, so I just saw them going together. And, and I still see it that way, that, uh, that that's the way you should look at it is that uh, even though you're funded soft money or you're seeking money, uh, you're probably doing the higher quality and more lasting research than uh, someone who's maybe doing a small uh, study uh, on a part-time and as part of their job. Uh, and interesting enough, uh, when I was in China last year, one of my uh, assignments was to work with this set of doctoral students uh, from the major universities in China. And uh, so I made the pitch that uh, the only quality research was funded research. And this uh, was very hard for them to conceive. It, it was kind of like, uh, to, I have to get funding and nobody told me how to get funding and nobody said I had to do this. Uh, you know, they were, everybody came from this vantage point. And it was kind of like now I'm at the end of my doctoral studies. Why is this coming up now? <laughs> and uh, so it was a very interesting discussion. And these were some of the, more, the highest quality doctoral students in China. 
and they were very sophisticated. I was impressed. But uh, this was a topic that they had never really heard of before. Uh, and I think we're a little bit uh, like that in the US. Uh, it's sort of a buried topic. Uh, and there's very little thinking about how do you put the two together and, and become a noted scholarly person, which is where you want to go. And, and you're really uh, inviting us to think about this as uh, a shift that impacts all of our thinking, a shift that impacts uh, and is at the front of our head as we initiate any research, as we initiate any kind of, of project. Um, you've also mentioned how this can shape the overall uh, institutional culture. Can you say a little bit more about that? What, what that means as a, as a culture of folks with that, that mindset? Yes. So uh, yes, the culture is where you want to be. Uh, in other words, you want this to be the way everyone automatically thinks uh, in the center all the way from the fiscal officer to the, all the secretaries and student help and graduate assistants. And uh, you want everybody to come along in this way of thinking. And as that culture builds, obviously it gets easier and easier because everyone is contributing to the thought process and, uh, and everyone is part of it. Uh, now, developing the culture it takes quite a, it can take quite a bit of time because each person and you have to reinforce the culture constantly as new people come in and out students participate and yeah, but it becomes somewhat of a way of life uh, in terms of somewhat your personal life but definitely uh, uh, your work life i've had individuals that i think this culture actually took over their life completely uh, you know, where they were available 24 hours a day at any given point to complete something, to make it happen. Uh, uh, it was a little bit on the extreme end, but uh, it was a real sign that they had bought in 110%. Now, thinking about this as an institutional culture and thinking about what you said about kind of a shifting makeup of an organization with new folks coming in, and you talked about the need to kind of continually reinforce the culture. What are some specific practical measures and mechanisms that could help that take place and help you maintain that culture? Yeah, so some of those are going to be the, there'll be things that we're going to talk about in this uh, talk series, uh, like bringing together teams of people that are layered. Uh, so that you have a new student coming in. Uh, matched up or mentoring with a uh, experienced faculty member and maybe a new faculty member who's uh, been involved in part of this, but it's just kind of getting the sense of what's really going on. Uh, you match them up with somebody who's also brand new coming in. So the, this matching mentor-mentee uh, relationship building, typically in interdisciplinary teams, uh, so that uh, uh, people not only they get to personally know people, but uh, they get all the professional rub off and they get to see this in action and they actually are part of it. So they, they're given a distinct role and they're helped, they're assisted, mentored, uh, but they participate actively. 
and uh, and you either like it or don't like it and a lot of people don't like it initially it's like overbearing it's time constricted there are all these things that are going on that might violate your personal space initially uh, but uh, then they typically begin to move into the groove a little bit get a sense of the culture they see the payoffs uh, which is important in other words you have to have some success along the way because that's the reinforcer typically uh, that either funding comes in new grants product sales conferences trainings all these things uh, begin to show a positive uh, on the uh, fiscal line and and people need to know that I, I think one one of the things that is a real part of this is everybody in on soft money or on hard money, you should know where your funding's coming from, who's involved with that funding, how did it get there, uh, where's it going? You, you know, you shouldn't be ignorant of any of that because you're part of making it happen. And you can't be part of it if you don't know it. Uh, so that, that, that that's a real almost a prerequisite is you become very uh, involved in your funding source and understanding it in detail so with this greater awareness and understanding of kind of the funding mechanisms of the institution uh, finally i wanted to ask you with a lot of the things that we've been talking about uh, in general of engendering this uh, mindset at an individual level and at a cultural level and um, mm -hmm. can you say a little bit about how that's been reflected at CBS uh, and maybe ways that we can help uh, to continue to invite that and nurture that towards the future. Yeah, I think, well, over the years, uh, there's been kind of a, uh, oh, laying the framework, the, the guiding principles that guide CDS, uh, of being sure that those are, everybody knows what they mean and there's some follow through with them in terms of your behavior and your activities uh, and understanding the fiscal mechanisms in CDS itself. Like what, what are the different accounts? How do they work? How do I contribute to them? Am I drawing from them? You know, it, it, understanding where you are in relation to all that it, it is, is very helpful along the way. Uh, and at times we've very clearly done that uh, in the past, laid that out as well as match that up within. These are the principles that we operate under. Uh, these are the expectations. If you are a, a faculty member or a supporter in CDS, uh, these are the expectations that we need you to adhere to, to be supportive of this center and to be clear what they were. And I, I think that's real helpful. Uh, usually the worst thing is for someone to be in the dark and uh, not knowing what's happening with their position, with their project, with their funding, and not being able to contribute in some way or not having a sense of how I could contribute. And sadly, that happens uh, from time to time, I know, as we move along. Because CDS kind of, CDS is a very pliable organization, uh, and most R&D centers are like this, where uh, you may be forging in one direction one year, and that direction's tweaked the next year, or it moves in a little bit different direction the next year. And 
people change and personnel change in and out. And uh, you may get a new big grant in an area that seems to take over a couple other areas. And so that you need to be able to understand that flexibility also and be comfortable with it. Uh, I, I think is a big, because change is scary uh, to anybody, and, but it's much less scary if you're well-informed and you're a participant within it. Then it's, you, you don't focus on being afraid or concerned. You focus on how do I make this happen in a way that's beneficial to me and everybody. So to and, place people in that kind of empowered space, uh, yes. you're saying they need to really be informed and feel involved in both the guiding principles uh, as well as having a real kind of grounded understanding of the fiscal uh, organization and the way that's reflected in expectations for their own work. To support that, as far as a practical mechanism, uh, does that suggest the need for like kind of ongoing uh, professional development? To, or what does that suggest to, to make sure that people stay aware of that? And, and uh, particularly with these kind of uh, changes in, in personnel that we talked about, et cetera? Yeah, it, it, well, it kind of happens at different levels uh, a little bit. Yeah, typically, it should happen first, first and foremost within the project or the activity one's working on. There should be full transparency and clarity uh, at that level. At the CDS level, it's uh, something that should be reflected in all CDS-wide activities and uh, all focused kinds of activities, grant writing teams and other uh, cross-project teams. Uh, and then obviously the college and university level, uh, it, it should be reflected as much as possible also. But uh, uh, for it to be a reality, right, it needs to become the culture uh, that this is the way things are done and uh, everybody does it this way and you know you need to fit within that framework as much as possible and we've had and we still do there's cds has a tremendous diversity of personnel I remember one time we had about 150 uh, uh, people and the range of diversity across all dimensions of diversity was uh, almost 100 <laughs> percent you could reach in all directions and so to expect everybody to agree to everything, uh, there's no way, you know, but you can forge, push people to the middle a little bit, a little bit at a time and gradually push people in directions that you want them to go. And uh, hopefully they want to go too. That's a big part of that. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I know we've run a, a couple minutes over that, that uh, the, the time that we'd anticipated. Um, and I mentioned how many people have talked about how your influence as a mentor has shaped their careers. And I'm really excited about how this conversation allow others to have just a little bit of that and a bit of a, a virtual mentorship uh, to benefit again from your experience and advice. Um, yeah, no, and I, I'm real interested in questions that people might have. Uh, since, since this is something you don't talk about very often, you do it. Uh, so I'm, I'm real interested in, since in talking about it, how people, uh, I guess, uh, think about it. Yeah, so we'll look at, at ways that uh, we can uh, 
kind of meet people where they are and what they're interested in. And when we continue these conversations immediately, uh, we'll talk about exploring some of these different kinds of funding and, and building mm -hmm. a diverse funding base like you talked about and later grant development uh, mm -hmm. and working as part of, a, of an organic team uh, in that process. Yeah, so we'll in future sessions, we'll get down to more to nuts and bolts and uh, how, this is how you do it and this is how you look uh, sort of thing. Well, thank you again. And on behalf of everybody listening, thank you very much for, for sharing this. And, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Same here. Thanks, Raphael. Thank you, Bob. Uh -huh.